As the trade deal known as the Trans-Pacific Partnership, or TPP, moves ahead, much of its content remains hidden from the public. But some leaked information has raised concern about the potential effect on access to affordable pharmaceuticals in the United States and abroad. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Amy Kapczynski, a professor of law at Yale Law School. Professor Kapczynski has written a perspective article about the potential health policy and public health implications of the TPP. Professor Kapczynski, why do we still know so little about the provisions of the deal, and how's that influenced the discussion about its potential effect on health? Well, unfortunately, there's been a kind of extraordinary level of secrecy around the negotiating text itself, so we don't have public access to the current text. And the only reason we have a couple of chapters of that text are that they were leaked on WikiLeaks, of all things. The reason for that, I think, goes back to a kind of important fact about the structure of the way trade negotiations work. They really are quite kind of closed in their nature. So you have the different countries that come to the table, and the only parties that really get access to those are either a sort of small set of cleared advisors. So in the U.S., we have a set of, in fact, committees that are almost entirely industry representatives or lobbyists for industry who, in fact, have access to those negotiations and the texts. Other than that, even Congress has had relatively limited access to the text, allowed to see it, but not do things like take notes. And on a text like this, which is extraordinarily long and complicated, that means that it's been very hard to keep tabs on exactly what's in it. In fact, even when Congress members go in to see the text, they're not allowed to talk about what the specifics are. And so that does leave us largely in the dark about the latest details. The leaks have given us a sense of what's at stake. And I think that's been part of what's generated the level of concern about the agreement that we've seen in recent months. One probable sign of industry involvement, you write in your article that some of the leaked proposals, if they were carried through to the deal, would prevent countries from putting limits on patent eligibility. So a country could no longer choose to extend patent protection for new uses of old drugs. How would that influence access to medications in the developing world? Well, a good example of what the stakes in the patent area are comes from a country like India. So India is often called the pharmacy of the developing world, and they have crafted their patent law in a way that is designed to be pretty tough for patent for pharmaceutical companies to get patents. They say they want really genuine kind of breakthrough innovation, and at the same time, they want to make sure that patents, which can give a company what is an effect a monopoly on a drug. They don't allow those in ways that would give too much scope to companies to raise the price of medicine. So they, for example, have done some things to make it harder to get patents, as you were just suggesting. In India, there are restrictions in their patent laws that make it difficult to patent new forms of drugs. So if you take an active ingredient and you turn it into a salt form or a crystalline form, In the U.S. and in many other countries, those kinds of changes are patentable, and that can add to the effective life of a patent on a drug. In fact, although we think of a drug being patented, there are often many, many patents that cover a drug as it appears in the market. And so what some countries have started to do because of the concern about both access to medicines but also about 
kind of pointing their patent law and pointing drug companies in more of an innovative direction as opposed to what we often talk about as incremental innovations is to restrict some of those kinds of patents. And one of the things that struck me most looking at the leaked draft as somebody who's worked closely on the issue of access to medicines in developing countries was that at least some proposals in that draft clearly target provisions like this and would make it illegal for any country that was part of the agreement to restrict patents on, for example, new uses of drugs or on new forms of an active ingredient on the grounds, as India does, that it doesn't increase the therapeutic efficacy of a drug. So those patent restrictions are, I think, in a way, both a very clear indication of some of the way this could increase the cost of medicines, but also the politics of these trade agreements, which really are driven, as you were noting, it sort of gives you evidence of who's really at the table in the agreements, which industries has a privileged position there. And what we see, I've been following these kinds of deals for more than a decade. And what you tend to see is that they find ways to try to use these agreements to block domestic developments that they think aren't in the interests of, in this case, the pharma industry. And so that's very much a part of what's at stake in the agreement. For biologics, you write that the United States is proposing a 12-year term of exclusivity as part of this agreement. President Obama has suggested domestically rolling that back to seven years. So why that contradiction? It's such a good question. I think one of the things that it suggests is, in fact, how insular these trade negotiations can be, because with one hand, the Obama administration is proposing rolling back that exclusivity to seven years for biologics, and with the other, they're proposing writing a rule into international negotiation that would then mean that we couldn't domestically have seven years, at least not without being in violation of our international legal obligations. So I think part of what happens in these negotiations is, in fact, that because of the dynamic of what I would call kind of colloquially the capture of the industry of these negotiations, they try to kind of get into law in this form and this forum things that otherwise are still being contested at the national level. And so I think the answer is that ultimately that is a provision that would benefit the folks who've really been at the table in these negotiations, in this case, pharmaceutical companies. It would make drugs more expensive because you would lock in this longer period of protection that would keep generics from entering. And the people who might otherwise object to that and raise either issues about consumers or about the kind of cost of the healthcare infrastructure aren't people who've had a very strong voice in these negotiations. When Obama has to write his budget, he has a lot of different kinds of people who are looking very closely at ways that we could, for example, reasonably save money. Presumably, they thought we could do that by reducing exclusivity without really having much impact on innovation. I think that's right. But what happens in these kinds of agreements is when people aren't looking, part because they're not allowed to see what's going on, one side kind of gets to the table and gets their preferred rules written in, and that can make it difficult for policymakers down the road. You spoke about prices. Part of the agreement says that countries must use competitive market-derived prices to establish drug costs. Would that create problems for Medicaid and other programs that rely on discounted medicines? Well, this is actually one part of the agreement that's been the hardest to follow. So the language that you quoted and that I mentioned in the perspective was from a draft that was leaked in 2011. 
And then just a couple of weeks ago, another draft was released that didn't include that language. So I think the first draft that you mentioned, which was from what we know, the U.S. negotiating position really could have created problems because I think, as many of your readers will know, to the extent that we do have some form of mandated discounts from off of the kind of baseline prices of pharmaceuticals, they are often a sort of simple flat level of discount and might be argued by some to be inconsistent with the way the annex read, which was to say you needed to have competitive market prices that reflected the value of an innovation. And there was a big kind of hue and cry raised when that first draft came out. My guess is that some of that had an influence on the negotiations and the latest draft that we've had. And again, these drafts are never confirmed as official drafts, but there are ways that people who follow the negotiations closely have to sort of verify that they are, in fact, genuine. The latest draft walked back from that position and instead puts more procedural restrictions on the way that national programs like Medicare and Medicaid, which are mentioned now in the annex specifically, so we know it will apply to them, the way that they deal with discounts on drugs. So now what we have are a set of provisions that more are about who has to be notified of what and the kinds of explanations that are required to be given to companies and so forth. I think one of the difficult things is knowing exactly what even the new annex will mean, because it's hard to parse its implications for something as complex as Medicaid and Medicare. And of course, this applies to all the other countries in the agreement as well, each of whom has their own probably relatively complicated national system for somehow reimbursing medicines and in certain areas giving discounts. So it's very hard to figure out exactly what any of these things actually will mean. We don't even know how they'll be enforced. There's a possibility that those terms in this annex will be enforced in this process that is another part of the agreement, which is called investor state dispute settlement. And that's a process where companies get to go directly to a private ad hoc tribunal, not really a court, but a private kind of tribunal that's set up where they can make complaints about interference with their potential future profits. And so it's possible, but not clear from the text that we now have, that companies will be able to go in and make complaints about parts of this healthcare annex, or in fact, all kinds of other things that they see in domestic law or regulation or policy that they think will interfere with their expected future profits. So that's yet another domain, which is, I think is really important for the future of healthcare policy in the U.S. In fact, what sorts of laws would you expect to be challenged under that provision? It's another terrific question, and I guess I wish we knew the answer. It's not a provision that sets out specific laws that could be challenged. It's a very broad provision that says that investors, foreign investors, can challenge laws that, for example, interfere with their expected future profits. And so what we have seen, there are other agreements that have these kinds of tribunals embedded in them, and NAFTA is one of them, for example. So we have a couple of examples. Companies have started using these much more actively in recent years. I think they've kind of figured out that they can use them. It takes a while for people to catch on to these kinds of things. And so we've seen a number of other examples that I think could start to show you the potential scope for these tribunals. 
and one is the challenging of tobacco regulation. So when Australia passed its version of plain packaging tobacco legislation, it was very quickly sued both in its domestic courts and in this ad hoc tribunal by Philip Morris. And the tobacco companies lost in domestic court. They made arguments that their property was being taken away because they were not going to be able to kind of use their logos in the same way on their packages, and they lost. But this ad hoc investor tribunal continues and still hasn't been resolved. And the possibility is that Australia will have to pay very substantial damages if it's found to have violated this investor state um, obligation that it has. That was under an agreement between Hong Kong and Australia. I think that also gives you a picture. Philip Morris isn't naturally something we would think of as a Hong Kong company, but companies can use these agreements to kind of find a venue to challenge domestic laws of a whole variety of sorts. So I guess I would expect potential challenges around labeling laws, like tobacco labeling laws, potential challenges around food labeling, um, which of course is also something of interest to people in public health. We saw another case recently, it's still pending also, where Canada was sued in one of these tribunals for provisions of its patent law. These were just, in fact, interpretations of its patent law that came through its courts, who in the sort of normal course of things, just like our courts, look at a particular case, and in that case, there were particular patents. And they said, well, our patent requires that the invention be useful, and we don't think this particular patent meets that standard. And they gave their reasons, and the company turned around, and after losing in the courts, sued them in this investor state tribunal. And so, again, you have the prospect of potentially protracted litigation, which is expensive and which I think is potentially, if you lose, you know, you can have no limit to the damages. In that case, I think the damages being sought are $500 million. You could see even more. So I think with respect to healthcare issues, any of these kinds of things that we've seen before, for example, about labeling or about patent law, I think you should expect that those could be raised as well. But I'm not sure what the limits really are because the provisions are so broad. So, for example, in this country right now, there's a very interesting debate. I think that's starting to pick up steam about how we think about drug pricing in the U.S. with the real, in some cases, skyrocketing price, particularly specialty medicines. If we were to shift course and, in fact, try to take on a more significant system of some rational drug pricing. And I don't know whether or not a company would come to a tribunal like this and say that this had interfered with their expected future profits. I think that too is a possibility. And so it's a bit of a wild card, that provision. And part of what I think is really notable about it is it's only a right that's given to foreign investors. You know, nobody else gets to come in, for example, a group of healthcare experts to come in and say, hey, some provision that is part of this agreement or elsewhere is interfering with the way the healthcare system works or way with public health or the environment. Nobody else gets access to a sort of specialized and largely privatized court. So I think that's another real cause for concern that also shows you something about where these agreements kind of come from and who's really been at the table. So final question, now that Congress has approved fast-track authority for the TPP, what happens next? Do you see changes in some of these concerning areas? I think 
we'll have a very interesting, at least probably a couple more months of negotiation. They've said over and over again that the deal was about to be concluded. and Nobody knows really, again, because of the secrecy, when we'll actually see a final text. I expect that countries will be negotiating hard against some of the provisions that we've been talking about because of their implications for healthcare costs and also for the kind of domestic health regulations like tobacco legislation. I think that for all we know, some of these provisions may already be on the chopping block because of the negotiations. And I would expect that some of them will be kind of toned down. I would be surprised if things like the investor state dispute settlement, which is now part of a big chapter of the agreement, if that got eliminated. So I think we won't see all of the concerning aspects of the agreement either kind of toned down or eliminated probably we'll see some shifts. And then what will happen is once it gets completed and we have a real text, every country will go through its own process of actually then sort of signing on and making official the agreement. And in the U.S., that'll mean because of the fast track legislation, it will have to go back one more time to Congress. We will then have the text of the agreement, and I think there'll be probably a very lively debate. I think the issue with fast track is it's pre-committed Regardless of without having seen the text in advance, it pre-commits Congress to an up or down vote on sort of accepting the whole treaty or not and doesn't give Congress the ability to adjust in any fine-tuned way what's actually, what our commitments actually are in the agreement. So there'll be, I think, a fairly intense debate at the point where we actually have the text about what its meaning is and the consequences of signing on. I think that's going to be a really critical moment that I would anticipate will come sometime in the next couple of months. But again, the timing is quite hard to predict because there's not a whole lot that we know about the specifics at this point. Thank you, Professor Kapczynski.